You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. A terror attack against two New Zealand mosques is announced on Twitter and live-streamed on Facebook. A new unobtrusive JavaScript sniffer infests some e-commerce sites in the UK and the US. Cryptojacking finds its way into the cloud. A look at the consequences of regulation, both good and bad. How CISOs will have to grapple with the increasingly pervasive Internet of Things. And China's National People's Congress makes a gesture toward respecting IP. But the world remains skeptical. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, March 15, 2019. Forty-nine people are dead in Christchurch, New Zealand, as anti-Muslim terrorists shot up two mosques during Friday prayers. Police have made four arrests. Intent to carry out the massacre was announced online shortly before the murders began. A manifesto seeking the sadly familiar goals of terror and depraved inspiration also linked to a shooter's Facebook page, where some 17 minutes of the massacre were subsequently live-streamed. It was apparently taken by a camera worn by the shooter, and it included the shooter's own repellent commentary offered as he gunned down worshippers. Of the four arrests, police have charged one man with murder— released another after concluding he wasn't involved in the attacks, and continued to investigate the other two. The inquiry continues amid widespread condemnation of the attacks. The video has been taken down, and authorities urge anyone who may have it to refrain from sharing. Researchers at security firm Group IB late yesterday reported that seven online stores, based in the UK and the US, were infected with a new and evasive JavaScript sniffer that Group IB calls GMO. They first discovered the malware on sporting goods site Fila UK. AT&T's Alien Labs have a report out on how cryptojacking has, like so much legitimate commerce, moved into the cloud. The infestations have come in a variety of ways. Some pests are compromising open APIs and unauthenticated management interfaces, in order to get into container management platforms. Others have gone after control panels of web hosting solutions. AT&T's Alien Labs blog has advice on how to recognize such attempts and a list of indicators of compromise. So here's a question. Does regulation have a downside? 
That's one of the issues that was under discussion at the Johns Hopkins University's annual cybersecurity conference for executives Wednesday. Regulation's promised upside is clear enough. It's an analog of public health and public safety measures transposed to cyberspace. And the usual complaints about regulation. It can stifle legitimate trade. It can be an indirect form of patronage and rent-seeking. It can be poorly designed. Well, those are also obvious enough. In a keynote that opened the proceedings in Baltimore this week, Dr. Phyllis Schneck, Managing Director of the Global Cyber Solutions Practice at Promontory Financial Group, began by drawing attention to the well-known principle that compliance isn't sufficient for security, still less synonymous with it. And one problem with regulation is that compliance can lead to unjustified complacency. But she went on to outline some of the less obvious downsides and upsides. Schneck offered Regulation of Personally Identifiable Information, PII, as an example of regulatory insufficiency. PII is widely regulated, but there's a wealth of other types of data that aren't, and which, when aggregated, can be at least as revelatory as what we commonly think of as PII. Information such as location data and buying habits, for example, can be just as valuable to an attacker as it is to the companies that collect the data. One of the problems with regulation, she said, is that it shows the bad guys what you're not doing, so they can invest their time and money into targeting areas that are unprotected. Attackers will always be ahead because defenders have laws that restrict their actions. Attackers can adapt more quickly to new information, and they're generally more open to sharing information with other attackers. Operational resilience is the only way to address this problem, Schneck argued. Companies need to have their recovery strategies set up in advance. She stressed that rehearsal is a necessary component of resilience. Companies need to ask themselves what they would do if all the lights went out tomorrow so that they're not dealing with that question when the lights actually do go out. John Forte, Deputy Executive for Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory's Homeland Protection Mission Area, delivered the closing keynote. He spoke to the proliferation of interconnected devices, transportation, healthcare, Buildings and cities, education, public safety are increasingly automated, and CISOs are going to need to deal with that trend soon. IoT devices will be used to assist in countless tasks, and all of these devices need to interact with each other. The challenge is getting them to interact securely and building them so they can't be hacked. Forte said that the traditional consideration for a CISO is aligning the risk to the mission. In the future, however, CISOs will increasingly need to become business strategists. What CISOs need to start doing today is designing open, resilient, zero-trust architectures, mastering the supply chain and enhancing automation and the use of AI. Forte noted that we're currently in the very beginning stages of artificial intelligence. Agence France Presse reports that China's National People's Congress has approved a law said to be intended to inhibit government agencies from forcing foreign companies to give proprietary technology to their Chinese partners in joint ventures. The bill also makes a gesture in the direction of establishing mechanisms for adjudicating disputes over intellectual property among Chinese and international partners. The measure is widely seen as a peaceful gesture in the direction of Washington, as Sino-American trade negotiations enter what appears to be their endgame. But few observers think the law will have much of an effect on Chinese conduct with respect to intellectual property. While the American Chamber of Commerce in China did say that the last-minute efforts are appreciated, 
It also regretted that the new law addresses just a small slice of the overall set of concerns our members have about the uneven playing field foreign companies encounter in China. On balance, that seems to be the international reaction. Too many loopholes and uncertainties remain for those who would do business in China. Perhaps it's the thought that counts. Agence France Press, by the way, helpfully, if sourly, calls the National People's Congress China's rubber stamp parliament. The vote in the National People's Congress was 2,929 for it, eight against it, and eight with nothing to say. That's a pretty big rubber stamp. Must need quite a stamp pad. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. And joining me once again is Craig Williams. He's the director of Talos Outreach at Cisco. Craig, great to have you back. Um, I wanted to check in with you this time about uh, where we stand when it comes to crypto miners. Well, so, you know, one of the things that we always suspected is that, you know, as the cryptocurrency markets continued to soften, you know, a lot like the other economies, that we were going to see some sort of impact and the behavior of the attackers using that as a preferred payload. Hmm. And so we looked in our telemetry. Obviously, we have telemetry from our customers who decide to opt in. And funnily enough, I, I made a fun mistake. Uh, I noticed a little bit of a dip in November. And so uh, I talked to Nick and uh, Nick and I were talking about the theory and we agreed that, hey, yeah, there could be something to this. Let's dive in. Hmm. And? Well, it turned out the day I was looking at was Thanksgiving. <laughs> 
So for wow. those of you, for those of you outside of the United States, that's when we all quit work and go eat turkey for a while. I think we and, may have just gotten a little glimpse in your personal life there as well, Craig. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it turned out that uh, we were able to prove that yes, the tiny little window I saw absolutely happened. Mm, all right. But when you looked at it from an overall perspective, that was really just a temporary dip. So, in fact, we basically confirmed the opposite of our theory. Not only is cryptocurrency mining continuing relatively steady, uh, previous infections are also being maintained. Yeah, it's interesting because I've seen stories recently about how on the mine on the legitimate mining side of things, you know, some of the the graphics cards manufacturers have been lowering their forecast expectations for earnings in large part because of the dip in the profitability of mining. Absolutely. And so, you know, naturally, I think it's normal to assume that, hey, maybe that will carry over into the, uh, you know, threat landscape. Yeah. But I think what we were able to determine was that because the risk is so low and, you know, the barrier to entry is zero because the kits are just out there littering the Internet, that it doesn't matter how low the price goes. You know, until there's something that's even lower risk with a good payout, people are going to continue using these tools for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and it's also interesting that, uh, I guess, as far as these things go, this one can have a low impact on the end users. Uh, lots of folks have crypto mining going on and might not even know that it's happening. Well, so that's an interesting discussion. I'm glad you brought that up. So, yeah, I, I've heard that argument a lot, and I think there is a kernel of truth to it, right? Yeah. You know, if you have cryptocurrency mining going on, well, your network's not going to go down immediately. You know, your data is not going to be held hostage. Right. Uh, and you can probably carry on with business as usual for a while. You know, the big flashing red lights need to be if you have a cryptocurrency mining on your network, that's just what you're aware of, mm. right? You've left the door unlocked somewhere and you know that people are going through it. Maybe you know what one person who went through the door is doing. Maybe they're crypto mining quietly in the corner, but you have no idea who else has come through that door and what data has gone out that door. Uh, and so I think while it's true that the crypto mining itself is not that damaging, right? And yes, sure, there's some power loss and maybe slightly higher uh, expenses around that. But I think the real risk is that the door's open and any attacker who wants and can find it can come through that door and cause additional damage. Sort of um, a canary in the coal mine, if you will. Exactly. Yeah. All right, well, good insights as always. Craig Williams, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Nirmal John. He's a journalist living in India and author of the book Breach, Remarkable Stories of Espionage and Data Theft and the Fight to Keep Secrets Safe. 
Dave, I think uh, one of the fundamental problems uh, we have uh, right across the world, frankly, is is the gap in in knowledge between and, and awareness, frankly, between the people who are in the cybersecurity business and the normal person on the street. I think that particular issue is a little more acute in India because of the fact that you have got a hundreds of millions of people who are coming on board onto the digital bandwagon for the first time. Uh, and, and these are people who don't, do not have any reference point when it comes to, uh, you know, the idea of uh, digital security. Can you give us an idea? What is the situation uh, that folks find themselves there in India when it comes to cybersecurity and protecting themselves? There are two or three different strands to this question. One uh, is in the context of corporates, right? In that context, uh, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I've tried to bring out in the book, uh, and this is primarily aimed at that kind of audience, what I've tried to bring out is the fact that it is individual mistakes often that lead into breaches. It, it is silly things like like sharing of passwords, for example, or clicking on the wrong link, which starts a domino of, uh, of, of uh, you know, things happening in the background. The other thing as a, as a larger view is the fact that, uh, you know, a lot of these instances can actually come down uh, through simple awareness programs frankly i think uh, i think uh, there are people who are make, making mistakes there are th- those are the silly kind of mistakes where you you click on something divulge numbers to uh, the the bank account numbers and bank pins atm pins and all that to people who who call it's mostly low level stuff that's happening right now and and that is what is worrying about as i said uh, when you have a um, but hundreds of millions of people who are coming on board uh, onto the digital world uh, you know it is the low level stuff that's actually uh, creating much of the issue now, as you're getting feedback on the book, as as people are reading it, are there any of uh, any of the stories that they're coming back to you and they're saying, "Wow, this was this was a particularly remarkable one." Uh, yes, I, I, I think one of the stories that I've narrated in the, in fact, the first chapter itself is of a of a top Indian businessman. Uh, he's one of India's richest men, you know, and you know he's a, he's a very powerful man. Uh, and uh, this guy uh, was, uh, you know, with the victim of a of a phishing email uh, back in 2011. The fact that somebody as powerful as him could be with the victim of something like that, I think that itself shows the gravity of the situation, right? And I think that's the feedback that I got when I when I told people about um, when when people came back to me about after reading the book, you know, some of these instances and some of the simplicity of the ways in which the breaches happened. Uh, that's something something that uh, stood out for most people. Are there any things in particular about India that you find unique to that country, to that part of the world, that might be different from what we're used to here in the United States? I think broadly, uh, notions of uh, things like privacy. Uh, we have, a, I think, culturally a different kind of a makeup and an outlook on things like that. And that has a direct impact on on cybersecurity. I think there is a culture of sharing, which is a little more overt compared to uh, countries in the West. 
the more information that that is out there the easier it is for people to uh, you know to for malicious actors to capitalize on it right so i think one of the fundamental issues is our you know willingness to overshare uh the center of the cybercrime universe has been other countries over the years but i think as india grows further and as the population becomes more and more digitized uh, i think uh, you know uh, there would be crimes would uh, and is actually in fact uh, taking off in a big way i mean the sheer numbers right i mean 1.2 billion people uh, in a in a country that itself gives a uh, malicious those who have malicious intentions uh, a great market what is especially worrying is the fact that you know this is a market where awareness is low so that's a that's a great combination right while the ticket sizes themselves say in a in a banking heist might be smaller the fact that uh, it's easier work for uh, malicious actors i think that is something that stands out uh, for me in india what do you hope people take away from the book folks who've read it what are some of the lessons you want them to take from it one of the fundamental things that i i want people to take away is is that it could happen to you hmm. i think we in india we often think that bad things happen to somebody else uh, and therefore there is a reluctance to take responsibility and invest in uh, whether it's it's in terms of training uh, you know an organization or in terms of uh, building the right technology to protect yourself i think i want people to be a little more skeptical i think uh, a little more skepticism in how they interact with the digital world around them would go a long way that's normal john he's a journalist and author of the book breach remarkable stories of espionage and data theft and the fight to keep secrets safe And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured.
visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.